0: All right, we're going to be in Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24 this morning is where we'll pick up. We'll read only three verses there, though, and then you can turn your Bibles also to Acts chapter 1, where we'll read the first 11 verses of of Acts chapter 1 there. We continue our series on the Apostles' Creed, and we come this morning to the phrase, He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Luke chapter 24, verses 50 through 53 is where we'll start and then jump over to Acts chapter 1. Hear God's word. Then he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Luke chapter 24, chapter 1, again verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had com- given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, and speaking about the kingdom of God. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who has taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Ascends the reading of God's holy and infallible Word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Well, in what is known as the historical gospel, the gospel is difficult to define in a very narrow sense. In some ways, all of the Bible and all of who God is, is the gospel. But what we understand to be the gospel in the life of Jesus, there are major parts to it. Outlines of it, the stopping points within what Jesus did and who he was to communicate the gospel. We have things like his, in, his birth, his incarnate birth. We have his perfect life, that he lived a perfect life on our behalf without sin. That he, we, we talk about his atoning death all the time on the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, defeating death. But there is an aspect to the gospel. That we often miss, particularly in the evangelical church, our mothers of the church—the Anglican Church and the Catholic Church—give far more focus to it. But for some reason, often the Protestant church in the in the evangelical world of America has left off the Ascension and its focus of the gospel. It is the least focused on parts of the gospel that we understand or even know. We know all the stories that Jesus did about how he kicked off the Pharisees and he did great many miracles and how he was raised from the dead and how he died for our sins, but we do, do we know why he left earth and why it matters? Luke begins this second book of his. You know, Luke wrote two books in the New Testament. The gospel of Luke was his gospel account of all that Jesus did while he was on earth. But then the book of Acts is also written by Mr. Luke, or Dr. Luke. And he begins it here in verse 1. The first book, O Theophilus, which is a man, a young Christian he's writing to, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do. It's what he began to do. Which means that when Jesus ascended, he hasn't simply been sitting up in heaven eating nachos with his feet lifted up. He has been doing something since he left this world. Since the cross and the resurrection, Jesus has been about something. And so what we see in Acts is the story of so much of all that God is now doing through his church. There's a lot more going on. But it begins with the ascension. It's an aspect of the gospel that we must understand. So we're going to look at that this morning and helping us understand the Apostles' Creed and what it is that we so centrally believe is a part of our faith. And I'm going to have two questions to guide our time this morning. The first question is this. Is simply what happened at the Ascension. Understanding what was going on there. And second, what is Jesus doing now? Alright, so the first question is, what happened at the Ascension? Well, in both these answers to both questions, it will be fairly simple in the answer, and then I'll have to take some time to explain it. The answer of the Apostles' Creed in the answer of the passage today is, what happened at the Ascension is that Jesus ascended into heaven. Period. Jesus ascended into heaven. If you ask the New Testament writers, where is Jesus today? We see at least 8 occasions in the New Testament where they proclaim that Jesus is sitting in heaven on the throne room of God. But we're going to look at each of those tar- those words within that sentence Jesus ascended into heaven to help us understand what is going on fully and finally in the ascension. First, we have the word Jesus. Who is it that ascended? It was Jesus. It was he who returned to heaven. Now, who is Jesus? This is an important thing to understand, and we've looked at this in other places as a part of this series. But just to remind you, he was the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who became incarnate. He was deity who took on flesh so that he was both fully God and fully man. And while he was on earth, he lived a perfect life. He was crucified and killed for our sins, and then he rose again from the dead. But when he rose again from the dead, he did not simply rise as a spirit to float around the earth. Jesus is not some sort of divine ghost. We already have one of those. He's called the Holy Spirit. Jesus was raised with a physical body. When the, when the disciples see him, they can still see the scars in his hands... And the wounds on his side is now a part of his beautiful and glorious body. 1 Corinthians 15 said that he was erect, resurrected with a true body. The God-man who has died for our sins has risen from the dead with a body and then has ascended into heaven with a body. Here's what this means. is that there is even now a man, a human being in heaven. All of us when we die, our bodies and our souls are separated for a season. Our bodies remain on earth and in the grounds. We go from dust to dust, to ashes to ashes, but our spirits go to dwell with God in heaven, but not Jesus. Jesus went before us with his full body as a man, as God, back up into heaven. Alright, so that's the first thing we see: Jesus. Second, though, what did he do? Who it was was Jesus. Second, we see that he ascended. What is it about? What about the act of ascending? What do we mean when we say that Jesus ascended? Well, the account here in Acts and Luke's other account, the Gospel of Luke, show us that Jesus arose into the heavens or the sky, and there he blessed his disciples. And then, after blessing them, Jesus was surrounded by a cloud and disappeared from them. And then he says he was in heaven. Well, first, it is rather obvious what happens here and the physical act of what is going on in the ascension: is as Jesus levitates? You've seen David Blaine do this. Apparently, these various people try to, you know, as magic tricks, levitate, but Jesus actually levitated. He rose physically from the earth. He goes up, physically up into the air. In verse 9, it says that he was lifted up. The reason why Jesus does this show, because it's not necessarily absolutely necessary that he be physically raised up, is that what is being spoken of and symbolized here is that Jesus is being raised up into the air, is it's reflecting the positional reality that he's going to. Where is he going to dwell? A throne. We'll talk about that in just a second. C.S. Lewis Tall understands this that whenever we think of power and authority, we look up. He says this we understand intuitively the direction of transcendence. It is hardwired into our understanding that all cultures and all peoples look up. For all the time, where the supposed gods have hung out have been the mountains, where the great men hang out is up in the mountains. When people are on a throne, they ascend up into a throne. And when Jesus ascended, he indeed physically went up, but more importantly, he positionally went up. You see, what we see here is Jesus doesn't simply keep going higher and higher into the air like he is some sort of cosmic rocket, This is what I used to think as a kid. I grew up about 40 minutes from where the space shuttle was launched and where various rockets, my house would shake when the space shuttle would go up. I could see it lift off from my house. So it was a really cool experience. And, And as a kid, what I thought was the great miracle about the ascension was how in the world could Jesus get up there where there was no breath, where there was no air and he could still breathe. That's what I thought was the great miraculous event of the ascension. How is it that Jesus could go up there beyond the atmosphere and breathe out in outer space? And I also thought this, you you remember, as it was described to me as a kid, I see I grew up in the day where junior church and Sunday school was taught with a felt board. You remember these? They're very cute. I think we should bring them back. And Maybe I'll start teaching with them. Forget PowerPoint. We need felt boards. What I I imagined as a kid was, as I watched rockets and shuttles go up, they would go up at a particular trajectory, wouldn't they? Why? Because they had to hit a certain trajectory at a certain angle in order to break the Earth's atmosphere. To break into outer space. And so, as I used to imagine Jesus going up, as I imagined that he started at kind of an angle. So I would shift the little felt man so that Jesus went up like this. <laughs> but that isn't exactly what is going on. When we say that Jesus ascended, we don't simply mean he went way, 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 way up in the air. The word ascended, and even Jesus' act of moving upward in the sky before he disappears, is a physical representation of a positional reality. In short, the physical ascending of Jesus. Represents his positional rising to the throne. Where is he ascending to? What does the ascension mean? It means that Jesus is moving upwards onto a throne. The ascension of Christ was actually a movement into a new position for him, just like when a monarch king ascends the steps upwards onto the chair that is known as the throne. This changes his relational reality and is also his positional reality with everybody else on earth. He is now above all and over all, and so it is with Christ. When we speak of him ascending and rising above us, it is the picture of a king rising up to his throne. That's what is happening at the ascension. It is a coronation of sorts, not simply just Jesus becoming the first astronaut. So the ascension of Jesus means that he's moving higher and higher to a greater position, and where is that position? Where is that throne, it says. Jesus ascended, to heaven. The third part is heaven. Jesus ascends to a throne that is not here on earth, it is in heaven. So we have to ask the question, of what is heaven? We must make the distinction here where Jesus, it says there that Jesus rises up to heaven. There's a distinction made in the scriptures between the heavens, which most often speaks of the physical heavens, the stars and the sky, and heaven, which is where the presence of God is. Heaven is not simply up above us. We understand that heaven is something different from this realm, not simply something that is located way up where Jesus just simply rocketed up and he sits on a star somewhere. That is not what heaven is. The Russians didn't seem to understand this very well. Remember the first cosmonaut, Yuri Gagarin, whatever his name was, Yuri Gagarin, yeah. And Khrushchev, the leader of Russia, in a, trying to squash the reality of God, what does he say? He uses, says, Yuri goes up there, and he flies up into space, and he does not find God. Thus, God cannot exist. I think he misunderstood. God is not hanging from a half moon like some child from a child's story. That is not what he is doing. Heaven cannot simply be defined as somewhere up there. So what is it? Let's see if I can get some help to us from a man named M. T. Wright who wrote a book called Surprised by Joy. It's a fabulous book. I'd encourage you to get it. N.T. Wright, Surprised by Joy. So I'm going to give you a number of quotes from that book this morning. Here's the first. N.T. Wright says this, Heaven and Earth are not two different locations, as in geographical or physical locations, within the same space-time continuum. Rather, they are two different dimensions of God's creation. It is not as if Jesus is still in this same space-time place that we are in. To maybe put it in more layman's terms, one pastor put it this way when he was thinking about the ascension. He was asking himself questions like, when Jesus ascended, how far did he go? And how long did it take him to get there? But as he reflected and he thought about this, he broke out into laughter because he realized how far... And how long did it take him to get there? These are space and time questions. And he's asking about Jesus the Christ, who is the Son of God, who is God himself. And God is the one who has made space and made time. He is beyond it. He is not held by space and time. To further drive this in, another quote from M.T. Wright. Bear with me on this. It's a little bit lengthy. He says this, and a little bit heady. He says, I think the problem that we have had comes from the wrong conception of heaven. Once you start to think of heaven, not as a place miles up in the sky, but as God's dimension of reality, which intersects with ours, certainly then you realize that for Jesus to go into the heavenly dimension, it is not for him to go up as a spaceman miles up into space somewhere, and not for him to be distant or absent from us now. It is for him to be present. But in the mode in which heaven is always and already is present to us, that is, it's just through an invisible stream. It is both present and it is real. It feels distant from us because it is invisible from us, but it is always right next to us. The sense of this earth in heaven is not a sense of geographical locations within the same space and time to continuum. It is not that heaven is way up there somewhere. It is that heaven is over there through a veil. This is best depicted through the temple. In the temple, there's there's the earth around it. There's all people living on the earth. But in the temple, there is a great veil that separated man from the holy of holies. That is the same thing that is going on here. There's a veil that we cannot see that separates us from heaven. And what Jesus did in the incarnation is he unzipped that veil and walked in. And what he's doing in the ascension is he's zipping it back down and walking right through. But this time, when he walks through, what does he do? He tears the veil up. That's what he did on the cross. And this is what he's doing for us. Which means this, that Jesus in his state as king of the earth, when he's standing up there, he is not distant from us. He is not some distant deity, but he is present and close with us now. You want biblical reference for this? Acts 17, verses 27 and 28. This is an odd concept, but Paul, I think, brings it out. When he's talking to the Athenians, he says this, he, speaking of God, is not far from any one of us. He's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. We do not see him, but he is always around us and he is close to us. Once more, N.T. Wright, he says this, The ascension means that Jesus is available, he is accessible, without people having to travel to a particular spot in order to find him. Jesus is not a monk standing on top of a mountain that we must travel to in order to get some sort of gleaned, bizarre wisdom. He is not sitting in a temple that we must pilgrim to in the Middle East. He is in heaven, and in so doing, he is also right next to us. He is present with us always. But more more than simply being in a different dimension, Jesus going to heaven means, as it states in the Apostles' Creed, and as it states multiple times in the New Testament, in heaven, he is with God the Father. Indeed, heaven is the very presence of God, the full presence of God. The Creed tells us that He sits at the right hand. But you ask you might ask this question, he even just stated it from Acts seventeen. Paul says that God is everywhere of sorts, and that is that'll be right if you ask that question. Isn't God everywhere? And that is true. But what makes heaven heaven? It is a fuller and more well understood sense of God's glory. Here we see God's glory with a, as in a veil dimly. In heaven, God's glory is fully and completely revealed. Here on this earth, God's glory is coming to be made known in some various ways, but it is slow and is progressive. But in heaven, it is the place where all things are as they ought to be. It is the very pre- close presence of God. There is no veil hiding his glory anymore. There is no sin. There is no suffering in his presence. And the fact that Jesus went to the presence of God is seen not only the fact that the angel says that Jesus is in heaven, but also by the very symbolism of the account going on in Acts 1. Follow this with me. In verse 9, it says this, that a cloud took Jesus. A cloud took Jesus. Now, clouds in the Bible have significant connection with redemptive history and significant symbolism. In the Old Testament, when the Israelite people left slavery from Egypt, when they crossed over the Red Sea... They were followed by a fire at night, and during the day they were led by what? A cloud. This was the glory cloud. When Moses went up to get the law from God, to see God's glory, to meet God face to face, what met him there? A cloud. When the Israelites built the tabernacle and when Israel built the the temple under Solomon's rule, what fell upon the temple and upon the Holy of Holies? A cloud. The glory cloud. It is representative of God's presence this cloud. We see a parallel physical representation. We have the fire in the cloud when Israel leaves Egypt and travels across the desert to the promised land. What takes Elijah up into heaven? A burning chariot. It's the same thing. It's parallel to what's going on here. That Jesus is whisked up into heaven, not on a a chariot we see, but on a cloud. Jesus is in ascension. What is represented here, what is communicated here, is that Jesus went into the various glorious presence of God the Father. That's what's going on. And what is he doing there? He's sitting on a throne as the God-man. This is what the ascension means. Jesus ascends to heaven means that the God-man, fully God, fully man, goes up, sits on a throne with God the Father. Now we ask the question, and we come to our second question this morning, what is Jesus doing in heaven? What states it there? And I've kind of already stated it in what we said in what the ascension means. Very simply, he is sitting. He ascended into heaven and sits with God the Father Almighty. Now, With theologians, when they talk about this, when you talk about his sitting on the throne, they use the word session because that means sat down. This is the session of God's reign and God's rule. We think of sitting, we tend to think of inactivity, don't we? We think of Cheetos and football and just sitting there like a, a bum. But when a king sits on a throne, it is quite the opposite of inactivity. It is the source of all his activity. When a king sits on a throne, it means that he has sat down for to rule and to reign over his kingdom. And so when we say Jesus sits, we are saying the same thing. That Jesus is now ruling and reigning over his kingdom. Ephesians 1, verses 20-23 through 23 bring this out beautifully. It says this, That God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Where? Far above all authority all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave his head over all things to the church, which is his body. What's he saying? That all things have been put under the throne of Jesus, under his rule and his reign and his dominion. The relationship between heaven and earth is that heaven is the control room of earth. One more, well, this, I think I have two other quotes from N.T. Wright, and here's what he says about this, it's quite pithy. Heaven is like the CEO's office where Jesus is ruling the world, and that is what he's doing now. When Jesus ascended to a throne, he did not ascend to a small, provincial, regional throne here on earth. Now Jesus ascended to the throne room that is over heaven and earth, over all things. This is why the great Reformed theologian Abraham Kuyper could say this about God's rule. He says, God looks at every square inch of all things in heaven and over earth, and he says, it is mine. This is why your work matters. Because everything is under his dominion and under his rule. This is why your marriage matters, why schooling matters, why your thinking matters, why philosophy matters. All of these things matter because they come under the kingship of Jesus Christ. Because he cares and loves and oversees every square inch of all of society and all of culture and all of the world. Therefore, Jesus is the God-man who reigns over all things. And what he is doing is he is reigning as king of kings and he is reigning as lord of lords. The full reality of this kingship, it's not fully seen yet. But what he is doing in Acts and for the rest of the history of the church is he is bringing his kingdom to bear. And there will be a day in which his kingdom, which has been inaugurated when he went to sit on the throne at the ascension, one day will be fully consummated when everything, when the glory of heaven will be brought down. And everything will be read as it ought to be. Two thoughts to try, turn, our, turn us towards the end this morning. Two applications for us in order to think about and apply the application to you. They both have to do with if, if, if Jesus is king right now. If indeed the ascension is true and if you believe it, it means that we must bow to him right now. If he is king right now, it means you don't wait. You bow to him right now. This is what we would call in the Christian world, surrender. Surrender, that's what you do when a king comes. You surrender to his rule and to his authority. We know who the real king is. And when you know who the real king is, and when you've seen what this king has done by dying on a cross to bring you who is an enemy into his family and into his kingdom, you know that he is worth dying for and living every aspect of your life for him, surrendering all of who you are to him. Andrew Murray, who was a 19th century Scottish preacher, tells a story one day about this idea of surrender. And he was sitting around with a group of folks after a particular sermon. And they were debating about what it is that the Scottish people, that their nation, what sermon did they most need to hear? And everyone was giving their various opinions and being very loud and boisterous. And people began to actually argue about the, this idea. But then the, the man who was probably most esteemed in the group, who had said nothing before, stands up and quietly says this. Absolute surrender to God. That's what we most need to hear about. Absolute surrender to God as our king. This is what the truth of the ascension, the application of the ascension is this, is that there is a king and that we are called to bow to him with every aspect of our life. Kevin DeYoung is a pastor I enjoy listening to and he talks about this with the ascension. He says this, the ascension implies that asking Jesus into your heart does not mean inviting a kind friend or confronting a therapist into your life. It means if we are using the non-biblical phrase asking Jesus into your heart in a biblical way that we are expressing our desire to be one with the king of the universe. And that is a big deal. The Jesus who lives within our hearts is sitting exalted at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. You have not invited just a cuddly little teddy bear into your life. You have invited the king of the universe into your life. And when you invite a king into your life you don't invite him for you to tell him what to do but for him to tell you what to do. That's what surrender means. So you live your life bowing the knee to him. Now, the main issues in our life is when we decide that we are king. Douglas who's a pastor, said this, Whenever we fail to proclaim the ascended Christ enthroned and exalted, something else, our personal agendas, the world's agendas, even our own personal or particular church's agendas, moves in to fill the vacuum. Mark it down, he says. Whenever we fail to exalt and enthrone Jesus as king, Someone or something will fill the void. And that is what has happened. Often it's you who fills the void. How is it working for you? For the most part, we stink at running our life. And you've been a terrible king, and frankly, you've probably been a tyrant to work for. I know the tyrant that lives inside of my head is a fool and a jerk. And he drives me nuts constantly. And where I find real peace and real freedom and real joy in my life is when I say, shut up, little tyrant, in my head. I'm going to bow to King Jesus and what he wants for my life. It doesn't mean my life is going to be easy. Oh, my. It might mean it's very, very hard. But it does mean that he has my ultimate good in mind because he is king and he's proven it on the cross. This brings us to our second application. It's this. If Jesus is king right now, it means that everything, everything, Everything in history is controlled for his glory and for the good of his church. In the Shakespeare play Macbeth, the, the character Macbeth, when he finds out, excuse me, he finds out that the queen is dead, says this: follow the old English. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. In layman's terms, what the character is saying is that life is an illusion, it's a shadow, and it's meaningless, because there is a faceless power that controls all things, and therefore there is no happiness, there is nothing but meaninglessness waiting for us. That's a bleak picture, but what does Ephesians 1 say about that? I read it just a moment ago. Is there one who rules? Is there a faceless deity who rules over all things? A personality less God? No, there is a personal God who rules and reigns over all things as the king of the earth, and he controls all things for the good of his church, it says in Ephesians 1, for his body. This is what he is doing. That Jesus is ruling and reigning for the good of all of us who follow him, who put their faith and trust in him. The ascension means that he has gone to the throne of the universe over all things. As it were, and he's controlling everything that happens in history for our good. Did you know that Romans 8, 28 comes courtesy of the ascension? What does it say? All things work together for the good of those who love God. Who are those that love God? That's the church. And that's the promise that comes to us through the ascension. He's ruling everything for the good of the church and for the good of his people in the church. Now, what does that mean for our lives? It means that Jesus is up there, and in a sense, he's controlling all of history, every single aspect, every hair on your head, every single car crash, every death in this world, every terrible tsunami for your good. He's controlling it all, everything. And how do we know that it's for our good? What has he done to prove it? All of these awful things that happen in our lives, the the sufferings and the tragedies. How how does he prove that? The cross. You see, you may experience awful things in your life, but there is a singular event that is the worst and most tragic event in all of human history, and that is that we put the Son of God on the cross. There is not a more vile, destructive, or wicked act than to put the perfect human being on a cross to reject him. And to be spit upon him. But that is what we did. There are worse forms of death. There are people who die younger than Jesus. But no one dies as innocent and perfect as Jesus. And no one is as perfect and powerful. And what we get from this, what we see from the cross, is now God has given us a model to understand our lives. Tim Keller says this, The cross is now the model on which Jesus is running the world to help us understand when Jesus says all things work together for good to those who love God, Keller asks, what does that mean? And then he answers his own question. He says that every single thing that happens, even the bad things, he's working in it to rule and to have the evil would defeat itself and to bring about a greater good that could ever happen before. What we see in the cross is that the worst human event in all of human history becomes the greatest event in all of human history. If he can take the worst event and make it into the most redemptive, most restorative, most glorious event where he reveals all that he is, then that is a powerful God and that is a good God. Then in this life, it is not promised to us that we will see or even understand this reality. We will not see or understand all that God is in his plan for our life. He may bring tragedies in our life and we, we look for them. We look for this silver lining supposedly, but we may not understand them until heaven. And this is the same in scripture. Sometimes he does reveal... Sometimes he doesn't. Let me give you two illustrations that are tied together, that are on different sides of this, that are tied together through a geographical location called Dothan. Dothan is a location in 2 Kings 6, where a man, a prophet of God named Elijah and Elijah's servants, are trapped in the city of Dothan, and there is a Syrian army that has surrounded them to destroy the city and destroy Elijah and his servants. And a Elijah's servant is rather distressed by this reality, as I think we would all be. But Elijah then prays and asks that his servant would see reality. And what happens? The servant's eyes are open, and what he sees is the city is surrounded by a city by a group of angels armed with horses, fiery horses and chariots. This is the ultimate reality. They got to see reality as a king who reigns and rules, who does battle on our behalf. But then there's another place in Dothan, another story in Dothan, in which that isn't the case. You know, the story of Joseph... The man with a robe of many colors when he goes to find his brothers and eventually tracks him down in a place called Dothan. And what do they do to him? They hate him, and so they beat him up, they throw him in a pit, and they sell him into slavery to be tortured and imprisoned and enslaved for much of his life. I'm sure Joseph was in the pit crying out to God for help. Is there any sign that Joseph got a vision of horses and chariots on his behalf? No, Joseph simply had the trust that God would provide for him. And that's exactly what God does. You see, we have the beautiful vantage point of being on the other end of Scripture where we can see later on as Joseph becomes the prime minister of Egypt and in so doing, he saves the people of Israel and he says before his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That's a beautiful truth. That's the kind of king that we have. He's so powerful, he can make evil flip itself and turn it into a redemptive thing. This is the reality for us. See, the ascension gives us an objective reality. What it tells us is that whether you can see the end from the beginning, whether you can see God's ultimate purposes, whether you can see the armies of heaven or not, that God is in control and he is leading all things for your good and for his glory. And so tomorrow, whether you face a bankruptcy or a death in the family or a sickness of one of your children or something horrible at your job or relational strife, you can know that he is king and it's for your good. Did you Bonhoeffer said this from a prison cell in which he waited for his execution. Today is the Ascension Day. He said, today is the Ascension Day, and it is a day of great joy for all who believe. You see, whenever the empirical evidence, whether it be a jail cell or a crisis in your life, it can still be a day of joy for you because there is one who rules the world, and he rules over our very lives And he has told us what the end will look like. There is joy because we live not only in the shadow of the cross or the light of the resurrection, but we also live in the rising sun of the ascension where King Jesus is bringing about his rule and his reign over all things. And the truth of the ascension, the promise that goes with it, is that King Jesus will break through once again. He unzipped the fabric, the the gap between the dimensions of heaven and earth once before. He unzipped it to go back, and he will come back in. But when he comes, he will come crashing in with heaven itself. This is what it says in verses 10 and verse 11. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven and in which will come on a cloud and that cloud will pull back and reveal the glory of Jesus and the beauties of heaven itself. One more N.T. Wright quote for you. He says this, the ascension probably understood allows us to understand the second coming as well. Again, it isn't a matter of Jesus coming as a spaceman flying downwards. It is the screen instead being removed and Jesus reappearing Many of the key passages of the New Testament speak of his appearing. Removed and his reappearing. Many of the key passages speak of his appearing, not merely his coming. And coming is a good way to express the truth. Because it appears he is now absent to us. So then if he appears to us, then it is as though he has come and has arrived. But the second coming is more like an unveiling. And it is an appearing of the king of kings. What is unveiled when the king appears? It is heaven itself. So Revelation talks about in Revelation 21. That a new heavens and a new earth will descend. And it is not simply that the earth gets burned up and destroyed and we get new things. It's not that He makes, He gives us new things, it's that He makes all things new. He takes all that is old, all the terrible stories, all the tragedies, and He turns them upside down to turn them into redemptive stories. That's what heaven will do, and that's what Jesus is bringing to, to bear in this world. He's doing it now through His church. And one day he will do it fully and finally with his second coming. With that in mind, let's pray and let's move to the table. Those who are serving the Lord's Supper this morning would like to come forward. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you that you're king. And God, we're supposed to repent as we come to the table, and so like repent this morning. That so often I try to run my life, and I try to be king. I try to control my finances. I try to control relationships. I try to do the things that are going to make me look good. I try to avoid discomfort whenever I can. Lord, I come before you this morning. I repent of that. I bow my knee before you as my king. Lord, I pray that the folks in here would do that as well this morning. I pray, Lord, where we are struggling with suffering and tragedy, that, Lord, you would come and you would press into our hearts the objective reality of your kingship and all that that means for our life. And, Lord, we thank you for the table that proves to us your goodness, that you are not a wicked king. You are not simply a powerful king, but you're a good king who has laid his life down for his citizens. Lord, we set aside this bread and this cup for its spiritual purposes and for its use. Lord, may you give us grace this morning as we eat and drink, as we remember the cross, as we remember the resurrection, as we remember the ascension, as we remember the fact that one day you will return. Encourage us, Lord, As we walk this difficult path, may you bless us and feed us this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.